Well, before we rush headlong into what we hope will be a happy new year, we do want to spend our time today uh, daring to look back at 2020 and think through what was going on in our culture and what was going on in our lives and what God was teaching us as a church family. Um, our goal as a church family in 2020 was to engage our community with the love and compassion of Christ. About March, that got totally blown up. We had all these creative ideas to reach out in our community and COVID really uh, waylaid all of those. So guess what our 2021 priority is? Re-engage, right? We're gonna get a do-over. It'll look really different because we're still kind of hung over from 2020 in a lot of ways um, in terms of things we're dealing with. But we'll talk more about that in the weeks that are ahead. The next six weeks, we'll be thinking about what it means to re-engage in practices that help us love God, love one another, and, and love our neighbors well. So we'll, we'll begin the year with a series in the Psalms that helps us with those things. But today we look back at 2020, the, perhaps the sentiments for 2020 have been best captured in this Christmas ornament that portrays 2020 as a dumpster fire. Um, you can actually buy these, they're on Etsy and Amazon. The entrepreneurs have them out, so if you want one, they're there. Uh, we're eager to forget this year, a lot of us. Um, you can pick it up in this good riddance mask. Uh, go away 2020, no one likes you. So that's because it's been a year full of troubles. And I wanna take just a moment and remind you what our neighbors, what we and our neighbors have been facing uh, in 2020. So just watch this short little clips of what we've been up against in 2020. been a year of sorrow and trouble for lots of people and many of us have been directly touched by those sorrows but this morning I just want to remind you um, this this is our time right the church is here for just such a time as this right we are his people Challenge to bear his love and hope to a world that is in great, great need. This is our time. Okay? And as we made through our way through such a troublesome year, God was equipping us and preparing us to be his people in this time. Um, teaching us through his word, forming us into a people who will bear the mercy of Christ to this, this broken world. Um, and so what we're going to do today is I want to drop in 
on just five of the 52 encounters we had with God in his word last year and see the mercy of God for us and for our neighbors. And as we do it, there's one question that I want each of you to consider. Even if you're a guest with us this morning for the first time, as you see this, um, this is a relevant question for you too. What, what does God want me to carry forward into 2021 from the teaching of our church this past year? What does God want me to carry forward? So we'll be looking at five different encounters. And as we do, let me pray for us that we would receive what God has for us. Lord, do have mercy on us. Amidst our troubles, remind us of your mercies, of grace greater than our sin and our sorrows. Use your word and your spirit now, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, right out of the blocks, first sermon in 2020, we began our first encounter in Luke 10 with a fellow we came to know as the Good Samaritan, right? You've, you've heard the story. It goes like this, a priest walking down the road to Jericho. Uh, it's a dangerous road. And when he comes upon a man who had been mugged and robbed and left for dead, he's a busy priest. So he passes by on the other side. Well, another religious leader comes along. This one is a Levite. Same road. Same suffering man lying there. I imagine he's busy too. So he passes by on the other side as, as well. And then along comes the least likely of do-gooders, right? The infamous Samaritan. He was unorthodox and outcast because of his beliefs and his associations. And he stops. He comes across this man. He stops and he binds up his wounds and he cares for him and he shows him mercy. And he, of all people, becomes the hero of our story because he has compassion. And Jesus makes his point when he follows up the story that he told um, about the Samaritan with this little Q&A exchange in Luke chapter 10. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus turns the story towards us and he says, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. And at that time, we had no idea how badly 2020 would press and tempt us to simply cross to the other side of the road from those who are in need. But this is what it means to follow Jesus. We are the compassionate ones especially on the road to Jericho, which is what 2020 surely was and what 2021 may well be. After that opening encounter with the Samaritan, we moved into a study of the book of Jonah and had our second encounter with the prophet Jonah himself. So you remember the story. There's a prophet um, who's given... A command by God. And it's, it's plot twist after plot twist after plot twist in the book of Jonah. Right? God commissions his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. Not what you would expect a prophet to do. The pagan sailors in the first chapter. They come, though they are pagan, come to fear the Lord. Offer sacrifices. Make vows to Yahweh. This is a shocker in the story. 
They throw Jonah overboard and a big fish appointed by God swallows him. No one saw that coming. The fish turns out to be a rescue and it spits Jonah out on dry land after three days. Another twist. Jonah walks into Nineveh. He preaches a five-word sermon and the whole wicked city repents in sackcloth and ashes, including the king and the animals. Who saw that coming? Then having preached the most effective sermon of his life, Jonah sits on a hillside and pouts over God's display of mercy and the loss of his favorite shade plant. And that's kind of how the book ends. What, What are we to make of all these plot twists in Jonah's story? What's it intended to teach us? If you remember, we talked about the fact that Jonah though he received grace personally, does not want grace to flow to the Ninevites. There's this amazingly beautiful portrait of the mercy of God towards the undeserving, towards the Ninevites, and Jonah is outraged over it. Look look at chapter 4, how he responds to God's mercy to the Ninevites. It pleased displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said oh Lord is this not what I said when I was yet in my country that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster so Jonah who had personally experienced by means of that big fish God's grace and compassion and slowness to anger and bountiful love and willingness to relent during calamity, concerning calamity, is now displeased and outraged at the exercise of that same mercy towards the Ninevites. Jonah's at odds with God. He can't delight in what God is doing or who he is. He would rather die, he says, than align himself with God's character and purposes. Because this is who God is. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Seven times the Old Testament uses that description, set of descriptors about who God is. He's even that towards a people as wicked and undeserving as the Ninevites were. Jonah has received grace, but he will not pass it on. Jonah wants grace for me, but not for them. And it is destroying him in here. Was grace blocked in your heart towards anyone or any group of people in 2020? Is there anything you saw or anyone you encountered and you wished anything but grace towards them? Tim Keller wrote insightfully about what's going on here. He says, what Jonah is doing is what some have called othering. To categorize people as the other is to focus on the ways they are different from oneself, to focus on their strangeness and to reduce them to these characteristics until they are dehumanized. We then can say, you know how they are, so we don't need to engage with them. This makes it possible to exclude them in various ways by simply ignoring them or by forcing them to conform to our beliefs and practices or by requiring them to live in certain poor neighborhoods or by just driving them out. So how did you feel this year, let's say, about 
about someone whose politics are different from yours. You know, someone who voted for that other guy. What about someone who is diametrically opposed to your view of mask wearing? How'd you feel about that? See, as followers of Jesus, we are to bear grace to them, not withhold grace from them. We are to bless even those who would curse us, those who would persecute us. Bless and do not curse, Peter says. Such is our encounter with Jonah. Now, after we taught the book of Jonah, we entered into a season leading up to Easter called the season of Lent. And during that season, we, we looked at what we called an atonement mosaic, uh, different perspectives on the cross work of Jesus, where he atoned for our sin by his own innocent death in our place for our sins. And one of those weeks, we looked at the image of the atonement that portrayed Jesus as our ransom and our redeemer. And it was here that we had another encounter with another character. This was a prophet named Hosea and his wayward wife, whose name was Gomer. And you remember this story. The beginning of Hosea's ministry, Israel was at the back end of a season of peace and prosperity. But though prosperous, they were far from God. Described as being in a spiritual stupor, riddled with sin and idolatry. And into that setting, God, with shocking clarity, said this to his prophet Hosea. Okay. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So let, let's be clear, Gomer is not a reformed prostitute. That would have at least had a redemptive twist. No, she's someone who's active in the profession, or at least is likely about to be. And so I'm sure against the counsel of all of his friends and family, and in a stunning act of obedience to God, Hosea takes a prostitute named Gomer to be his bride. And he loves her. And the story unfolds, she bears three children, but then to add injury to insult, his new bride, who has been so undeservedly loved, leaves him in spite of his love for her. She leaves him in search of other lovers. But once again, in chapter 3, God speaks to Hosea, and the way is made clear to him concerning what he must now do, and it must have been even more difficult than what he had to do at first. It says in chapter 3, the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and who is an adulteress. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Hosea was to pursue his wayward bride once again, it says, and buy her back. It's that little phrase in the story that I want us to slow down and think about together. So I bought her. It's that little phrase that shifts our attention from just Hosea towards Jesus. You remember that it was Jesus who said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, 
to buy back many. See, the whole purpose of Hosea's story is to show us how God loves a wayward and undeserving people. Chapter 3, the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. See, Hosea's marriage to Gomer is one of those lived out parables that God would sometimes ask of his prophets. Graphic in imagery, freighted with meaning. Sometimes it took something this shocking to get the message across to his hard-hearted people. So I bought her, her, that would be Gomer, the whore. I bought her, a whore, now turned an adulteress. The great understatement would be to say that the price was paid for someone undeserving. See, in Hosea's story, God has graffitied his message with the boldest of strokes. He shouted to us at the highest of volumes so that we would not miss it. This is how God loves his wayward people. This is how God loves you. Hosea's God, Gomer's God, our God loves the unworthy. People who, who are beyond the hope of ever earning that love, of ever being good enough for God. So don't think you're too worthless or too far gone, that you're somehow beyond the love of God. See, that's the point here. This is a giant neon sign pointing to how God loves us. Hosea is wooing a whore here and buying her back. And so is God. No one is beyond the reach of God's amazing love. That's how God loves. He loves the wholly undeserving. In Gomer's case and in ours. Clearly what Paul says echoes Hosea's example. God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the message we cling to. And this is the message we take to our neighbors. You are loved just as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up first. With all your sins and shortcomings and failures, the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ loves you because he is love. Even though you feel unworthy and unlovable, you are loved by God. This is our story of undeserved love, and it's our story to share with our neighbors. Now, following that season of Lent and Easter, we started our main study of the year, one of the biographies of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and, and I'd like to drop into just two of the 30 messages that we heard on the Gospel of Mark last year. And that first encounter involves a paralyzed man and his friend from Mark chapter 2. Jesus was in a house teaching in Capernaum. And some friends brought a paralyzed man to see if Jesus would heal him. 
The crowd was so big they couldn't get access to the house. So they literally climbed on and tore the roof off and lowered their friend down in front of Jesus. Maybe you remember that story. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to that paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus' religious adversary said, That's blasphemy. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Jesus, in verse 8, immediately perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus doesn't just talk the talk of forgiveness. He walks the walk, right? Literally. You understand what that means? It means that all your sins, all of them, each one that carries a death sentence before a holy God, each one, each selfish, cowardly deed you've done and thought you've thought, all the ones you can remember and all the ones that you've tried so hard to forget, even the ones you didn't even know you did. The Old Testament calls those sins of ignorance. Think about that. You feel bad about your mountain of sins? You you likely have another mountain you didn't even know about. All your sins. This Jesus, he has authority to forgive them all. To wipe the slate wholly, perfectly, eternally clean. This is true for you. And it can be true for your neighbor. Even the one that you're so bothered by, right? There's full Forgiveness for all who will come to Jesus in faith. Think about one last encounter from last year with me. This is in Mark chapter 12. It's a, it's a, it's a discussion Jesus has with a religious leader who was a scribe. And this conversation really could have been a New Year's conversation because it's about priorities. And when I taught this passage to you earlier this year, I referenced um, some thinking by Tim Sanders. He's the former chief solutions officer at Yahoo about his framework for priorities. He says, you take your life, all the things you think that are important, and you put them in one of three categories. The three categories are represented by three items, glass, metal, and rubber. You remember that? Um, The things that were made of rubber, when you drop them, will bounce back. Nothing really happens when these kind of things get dropped, he says. So, for instance, he says, now I enjoy sporting events, so don't take me wrong here, but if I miss a Seahawks game, my life will bounce along real fine. It doesn't change anything, nothing is lost. My missing a game or even a season of football will not alter my marriage or my spiritual life. I can take them or leave them. But things that are made of metal, when they get dropped, they create a lot of noise. But you can recover from the drop. You miss a meeting at work, You can get the cliff notes. Or if you forget to balance your checkbook and lose track of how much you have in your account and the bank notifies you that you've been spending more than you have, 
that's going to create a little bit of noise in your life, but you can recover from it. Lastly, he says there are things that are made of glass. And when you drop one of these, it'll shatter into pieces and never be the same. Even though you can piece it back together, it will still be missing some pieces. It certainly won't look the same, and I doubt you could actually fill it up with water because the consequences of it being broken will forever affect how it's used. So the question then is, what is glass for you? Could be any number of things. What is the most precious glass for you? And that's the essence of the question that our friend the scribe put to Jesus in Mark chapter 12. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Which one is glass, Jesus? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus says, this is glass. This should be glass for you. This is the most important thing. This is what you must embrace and you must protect and you must cherish. His answer begins with who God is, that God is one, and it flows to our response to that God. We love him with our whole being, our emotions, our spirit, our intelligence, our will. And How do we love him this way? What does it look like? Well, Jesus seems to have that in mind when he attaches that second commandment to his answer. We love God by loving our neighbors. We love God by loving those he loves. Jesus says this is the most important of things, to know God and his love and to love him back in such a way that we love those he loves. We love, we love our neighbors. And that love comes from knowing God and his love for us. That's what 1 John says over and over. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I love the way John Piper put it. He says, where does love come from? It comes from being stunned by being loved by God, right? This love comes from being overwhelmed by the person of Jesus dying on our behalf and rising again, though we have no merit at all in ourselves. When that grips you, then you will taste what it is to treasure Jesus, delight in Jesus, be satisfied in Jesus. We get love for God and neighbor from being, from knowing and being loved by God. And to do that, you're going to have to read the story of God and his love relentlessly over and over. It's the story of the Bible. And you're going to have to read it every day in this new year. And of course, this table that we're about to celebrate here. It's a reminder of the love of God for us. But first, before we, before we go there, let's go back to that question I asked you to think about. What is God asking you to carry forward into 2021 from our church's teaching this past year? That's a good conversation for this afternoon. What is God asking you to carry forward from our church's teaching 
this year. From our encounters with people like the Samaritan and Hosea and that paralyzed man and that scribe or or even as we finished our year, one of the songs of Christmas. Remember we went through a series of teachings on the scriptures underneath those carols that we sing. We cried out together, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Right after we lost 11-year-old Ty Williams and we mourned together the loss of Stephanie Jackson and we wept anew over the loss of 18-year-old Will Kerr, all three of those sorrows took place in our church family within three months or within one month, really, just about a month's time. And so we sang together with new passion, O come thou rod of Jesse, rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So as we approach this table, we remember together That even amidst a year of great troubles and sorrows, we are the beloved of God. As demonstrated in the great loving sacrifice of Jesus in our place on the cross, as the book of Revelation puts it, Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's writing about this table And he says that when we take this supper together in memory of Jesus' loving sacrifice for us, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so so today as we take this table, we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Now at Northwake, the table, the Lord's table is open for anyone who's a follower of Jesus who's walking in fellowship with him. So if you're not sure if you're a Christian or if you're a follower of Christ or if you're not walking with Christ now, then then it's not about you coming to this table, but it's about you considering your own relationship with Christ during this time and praying and talking with God as we remember his sacrifice for us. Because on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood and it's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. As the elements are served to you, I'd ask that you hold them until everyone is served and then we'll take them together as as one.